In Matthew 27, Judas returns to the chief priests to offer a confession. He will admit, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. In order to understand the significance of this confession, we need to explore the Old Testament background of the concept of innocent blood. We begin in the Mosaic Law. Numbers 35, verses 33 and 34 provides the general problem with bloodshed among the Israelites. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, Yahweh, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel." As one writer summarizes, blood unjustly shed by murder, child sacrifice, or judicial execution is a danger to the land. Indeed, in the land defiled by blood, neither God nor Israel can dwell. The land itself will eventually vomit out its inhabitants. Note that the legislation in Numbers 35 indicates that there is only one way atonement can be provided, and this means There is only one way for the land defiled by bloodshed to be cleansed, the death of the one who shed the blood. The institution of capital punishment in the case of murder goes all the way back to the time of Noah, right after his family got off the boat to start a new humanity. The Mosaic Law reinforces this for the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 19.13 refers to the person who has intentionally murdered a fellow Israelite. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, so that it may be well with you. When innocent blood is shed in the land of Israel, Deuteronomy 19.10 says that the guilt of bloodshed is upon the whole people of Israel. The Old Testament prophets repeatedly identified three particular abominations that had defiled the land of Israel so that God was going to bring the judgment of exile against Israel the guilty people, idolatry, sexual immorality, and the shedding of innocent blood. Jeremiah, in particular, uses the phrase innocent blood repeatedly. When Jeremiah confronted the Jewish leaders on one occasion, they were initially prepared to execute him. Jeremiah responded with the warning recorded in Jeremiah twenty-six fifteen: Only know for certain that if you put me to death... You will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, Yahweh sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. On this occasion, they heeded his word. Jeremiah had been instructed to give a similar warning with a symbolic action attached in Jeremiah 19. I'd like to read verses 1 to 13. We'll have reason to return to this passage later this morning. At the end of Jeremiah 18, the prophet had been threatened, and the prophet had prayed to the Lord, asking him not to forgive them, asking him to judge them severely. Yahweh's response to Jeremiah's prayer comes in chapter 19. Thus says Yahweh, Go, buy a potter's earthenware flask, and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests, and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate, And proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, Hear the word of Yahweh, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel. 
Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when this place shall no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And in this place I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem and will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life. I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth. And I will make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its wounds. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you and shall say to them, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, So will I break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. Men shall bury in Topheth because there will be no place else to bury. Thus will I do to this place, declares Yahweh, and to its inhabitants, making this city like Topheth. The houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah, all the houses on whose roofs offerings have been offered to all the host of heaven and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods, shall be defiled like the place of Topheth. It's a long passage. The most important things to grab hold of for our purposes this morning are three details. First, among the reasons Jerusalem is to be destroyed by the Babylonians is because, at the end of verse 4, they have filled this place with the blood of innocence. He specifies this as the sacrifice of their children in worship of the false god Baal. Jerusalem is to be destroyed because the Jewish people have shed innocent blood in Jerusalem. Second, notice in verse 6 that Topheth is to be known by a different name in the future. The valley of slaughter. The name change is significant. Third, notice in verse 11 that Topheth will become a burial ground. When the Lord sends the Babylonians as his agents of judgment against Jerusalem, they will slaughter multitudes and exile the rest. Near the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Herod the Great shed the blood of innocence not far from the city of Jerusalem in the little town of Bethlehem. And Matthew saw that horrific event as fulfilling prophecy from Jeremiah as well. In fact, in Matthew 2.17, we read a unique phrase. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And we'll see that exact phrase repeated in our passage this morning. But curiously, we'll see that Matthew doesn't actually quote words found in the book of Jeremiah. For now, I merely draw our attention to the connection between innocent blood and the destruction of Jerusalem. This rests in the background of our passage this morning. As you can see, if you're planning to follow the outline in the bulletin and from the sermon title, our passage in Matthew 27 is structured by the handing over of Jesus. In the ESV, we find the phrase, delivered him over. 
In the New American Standard Bible, it's delivered him up. In the King James Version, it's just delivered him. And in the NIV, it's handed him over. The same Greek word is translated betrayed when referring to Judas's action. Matthew uses this word 15 times in chapters 26 and 27. Let's take a look at verses 1 and 2 where we see Jesus being handed over to Pilate. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Judas had led a mob armed by the chief priests to the Garden of Gethsemane in order to arrest Jesus sometime shortly after midnight. They took Jesus to a mansion near the temple where Annas, the previous high priest, and Caiaphas, the current high priest, each interrogated him. Caiaphas had called for testimony that could provide the Sanhedrin with evidence that would support a proper accusation of conduct that would be considered a capital offense by the Roman government. However, false witnesses could not keep their stories straight, so Caiaphas confronted Jesus directly, asking him if he claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. He was looking for evidence that Jesus had claimed to be the king of Israel so that the Romans would view him as a rival of Caesar, worthy of crucifixion. However, Jesus drew on Old Testament scripture to identify himself as more than a mere human king. He identified himself as the heavenly son of man from Daniel 7, and as the Lord of David from Psalm 110, 1, who sits at the right hand of God. Thus, the Sanhedrin viewed Jesus' claim as blasphemy, but an accusation of blasphemy would not interest the Roman government. Nevertheless, the Sanhedrin heard with their own ears words they considered to prove without a shadow of a doubt that this man must die. All of this interrogation occurred before dawn on Friday morning. But in order to lodge a formal charge, the Sanhedrin needed to vote and could only bring such an accusation after dawn. Thus, verse 1 is parallel to Luke 22, verses 66 to 71. Most likely, they move from the high priest's mansion to the temple, to what was called the Chamber of Hewn Stone, where they asked Jesus some of the same questions they had already asked him. And Jesus complies by repeating the core truth of what he had already said earlier. Thus, they can get their quorum of 23 out of 71 members to support a formal accusation to take to Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. In all of this, we see Psalm 2 reflected most directly. The rulers of the Jews are taking counsel together against the Lord and against His Messiah, and now they are delivering the Messiah over to the Roman governor. The term Matthew uses for Pilate is not his official title. This would be prefect. The word translated governor speaks of Pilate's role as commander of a portion of Rome's armies and as the one who has been delegated authority to maintain order in this area on behalf of Caesar. The chief priests bind Jesus in order to present him to Pilate as one who appears to be a dangerous criminal. It seems that Judas has been present for all of the proceedings. So Matthew shifts his account to Judas. We already know that Judas betrayed Jesus, but Matthew sees some great significance in the rest of Judas' story. Thus, we revisit Jesus being handed over by Judas in verses 3 to 10. 
here we've got some tough slogging to do. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw all that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. In verses 3 and 4, we hear Judas's remorseful confession. Now, let's not lose sight of the point of these verses. These verses are not here to highlight the innocence or repentance of Judas. These verses are here to reinforce the innocence of Jesus. Nevertheless, we have to talk about Judas's end here. There is a contrast between Judas and Peter. Peter's remorse led to real repentance and later restoration, as we saw last week. Judas's remorse leads to despair and death. The word translated changed his mind in the ESV is translated with a phrase including the word remorse in most English Bibles. The King James Version, however, translated the word repented himself, which has led to considerations of whether or not Judas really repented at the end. We'll leave answering that question off for now. The context will bring clarity to that question, I think. Presumably, not all of the chief priests would have accompanied the prisoner to Pilate. Some would have remained behind at the temple. It is to these priests that Judas goes That in itself is an important detail. Judas goes to the priests to make confession. It is the priests who hired him to betray Jesus in the first place. Jesus is on his way to die as the final sacrifice for sin. The wheels are turning to make the temple and the chief priest completely obsolete when it comes to dealing with people's sin. As Pastor Doug O'Donnell observes, he went to the chief priests in the temple but not to the true high priest who is the temple. Judas should have gone to Jesus, who is sympathetic to our weaknesses and ready to forgive all our transgressions. Or more simply, we should notice that Judas confesses to men and not to God. However, these chief priests are the ones who would normally hear confessions of sin from Jewish people. These are also the judicial authorities, members of the Sanhedrin. And Judas is not merely confessing a sin, He's confessing a crime. Judas says, I have sinned by betraying, handing over innocent blood. And as we learn from Numbers 35, when that innocent blood would be shed, the land of Israel would become defiled. And as we learn from Jeremiah 19, when that innocent blood would be shed, Jerusalem would be clearly under God's judgment, ripe for another slaughter, desolation, and exile. So, How should the chief priests have responded to this? According to Numbers 35, they should have had Judas executed. In light of the fact that they paid him to betray innocent blood, they should have joined in the confession. 
they are being indicted here as well. Or as priests, they could have instructed him to offer a sacrifice, a sin offering. Or they could have perhaps should have reconvened the Sanhedrin and let Judas testify to indicate Jesus' innocence. And therefore, the innocent blood would not be shed. How do they, in fact, respond? Look again at their callous reply. What is that to us? See to it yourself. Commentator Dale Bruner writes, The ministers of God are in the temple of God to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. But what has this got to do with us denies justice to Jesus, mercy to Judas, and any kind of responsibility before God. This has everything to do with them. They paid the blood money. They plotted to shed innocent blood. They enlisted false witnesses. They have now handed Jesus over to Pilate. And they are the men entrusted with the responsibility for upholding justice in Israel and for helping Israelites deal with their sin before God. They don't care about Judas. They don't care about justice. And they don't care about their responsibility before God. They just want Jesus dead. These are false shepherds, hirelings who care nothing for the sheep of Israel. In verse 5, Matthew tells us, about Judas's suicide. He chucks the 30 silver coins, probably in a bag, toward the entrance of the holy place. Unlike Peter, who went out and wept bitterly, according to Matthew 26, 75, after denying Jesus three times, Judas went out and hanged himself. The chief priests wouldn't help Judas assuage his conscience. But there are some Jewish traditions that might provide a fuller explanation of Judas's tragic choice here. We tend to move towards psychological explanations, suggesting that Judas was overwhelmed with remorse, and guilt certainly does motivate some people to end their lives. However, some Jewish traditions spoke of some Jews in the past who killed themselves in order to atone for their sins. Deuteronomy 27.25 says, Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. And Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Thus Judas may have twisted these laws. He had confessed his sins to the priests. They offered him no absolution. Therefore, knowing that he sat under the curse of God for taking a bribe to betray innocent blood so that it would be shed, he acknowledged that he deserved the death penalty. Since the chief priests refused to enforce and uphold the law, Judas perhaps thought that he could atone for his sins, satisfy God's wrath by executing himself, and secure forgiveness from God by hanging himself out to die on a tree. But the legislation of Deuteronomy 21-23 goes on to say, You shall not defile your land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance. Which implies that if the hanged body is left out overnight, the land would be defiled. Earlier we learned that shedding innocent blood defiles the land. And now we see another way to defile the land. Thus through Judas' selfish suicide, 
hanging himself on a tree, he ensures that Jerusalem was doubly defiled, ripe for God's wrath to fall upon the city and the temple in order to provide the necessary cleansing judgment. It was bad theology that led Judas to kill himself. As Pastor Doug O'Donnell writes, he should have run to the tree of Calvary for life. Instead, he ran to another tree for death. And as commentator Charles Quarles indicates, Judas relied on his own death for his atonement rather than the death of Jesus. This is paramount to trust in a false gospel. There is a difference between trusting that the sin of suicide can be forgiven and believing that suicide might provide forgiveness of sins. Those who have had loved ones take their own lives for whatever reason and whatever circumstance must trust the Lord with the souls of those loved ones. Those who are alive and find themselves tempted to end their own life, let me plead with you, Suicide is never the right or best solution, no matter what you're facing. Jesus died and rose from the dead to provide hope, and he can help you navigate the depression and the despair that overwhelms you and that often leads to considering suicide. He provides that help through his people, typically. So if you're depressed, if you're despairing, ask for help. Judas's end is tragic. Acts 1.18 gives a gory postscript to Judas's suicide. Apparently, his dead body fell down from where he had hanged himself. Perhaps the tree limb could, not, could, only, could bear his weight only so long and eventually snapped. Matthew continues the story by telling us what became of the money. The chief priests are going to make a hypocritical purchase. They pick up the 30 silver coins and comment, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Why are these guys concerned about doing what is lawful here? This is hypocrisy on display. Jesus accused the Pharisees of nullifying the word of God by their traditions. But these Sadducees, these chief priests who are Sadducees, are guilty of the same thing. First, don't miss how they acknowledge that Jesus is innocent here. The phrase blood money is a technical phrase that means the price paid to murder murder an innocent man. There is no law in the Mosaic law about how to properly handle blood money. It's likely we have here evidence of another oral tradition, though they might be seeking to apply the principle of Deuteronomy 23.18, which specifies that money used in prostitution could not be used in the temple. In either case, they are straining out a gnat here, all while swallowing the camel of having a man they know to be innocent executed. So they decide to purchase a field just outside of Jerusalem to be used as a cemetery for foreigners. Matthew says it was a potter's field. This field probably had served as clay for potters in Jerusalem, but the clay had perhaps dried up so that it was available now for a cheap price. 30 silver coins. Remember how I said Jerusalem has become doubly defiled? The chief priests are playing into that description here. They are using unclean money to purchase an unclean burial ground for unclean foreigners. 
Matthew adds in verse 8 that the potter's field had a change of name. Decades later, when Matthew wrote his gospel, his readers knew where the field was, and it was still known as blood field. The chief priest used blood money to create blood field. The people of Jerusalem eventually would have heard about Judas's dead body being found. And apparently, as hinted at in Acts 1, his dead body was found in this field. The people of Jerusalem assumed that the field was called blood field because Judas's bloody body had been found there. But Matthew informs us that the chief priest's usage of blood money to purchase the field was the reason. It may be that the chief priests actually named it Bloodfield, chuckling in private about how they had used blood money to make the purchase, while the populace knew nothing about that, but instead connected the name with Judas' body. In any case, Matthew sees this turn of events as the fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 9 begins with the words, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. We already looked at Jeremiah 19 this morning, and I've set you up to see the connection I think Matthew is making. I think he wants us to recognize Jeremiah 19 in the background, connecting the changing of the field into a burial place and the changing of the name into one associated with blood and death. But the words Matthew quotes in verse 10 do not come from the book of Jeremiah. This is a common practice among Jews, and it occurs other places in the New Testament. Here, I think Matthew mentions Jeremiah, even though the words he quotes come from the prophet Zechariah, because he wants us to read the passage from Zechariah in connection with the passage from Jeremiah. So both Jeremiah 19 and Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, are being fulfilled in this event. Let's see if we can unpack what Matthew's up to here. The focus of the words quoted from Zechariah is on the 30 pieces of silver and the purchase of the potter's field. The words quoted from Zechariah 11, 12, and 13 come from a longer section, Zechariah 11, verses 4 to 14. Please allow me to summarize that prophetic message, and then we'll see how Matthew has connected it with this cluster of events. In Zechariah 11, 4 to 14, Yahweh instructs the prophet Zechariah to embody the word of Yahweh by becoming a shepherd to a flock of sheep. These sheep would be bought and sold in order to be slaughtered. Zechariah then took two staffs, one he called pleasantness, and one he called union. Zechariah, the good shepherd, drove out some of the wicked shepherds, but the flock rejected Zechariah. So he broke the staff called pleasantness. Then he asked the other shepherds what his service was worth. They paid him an insulting 30 silver coins, which according to Exodus 21, 32, is the price paid for a slave who was killed by an ox. Yahweh told Zechariah to chuck those 30 silver coins at the potter in the temple. Then Zechariah broke the staff called Union. Matthew connects the payment of 30 silver coins to Judas and the later use of those 30 coins to buy a potter's field with this enacted prophecy and also with Jeremiah's enacted prophecy from Jeremiah 19. There, Yahweh instructed Jeremiah to purchase something from a potter, a vessel, which he would later smash, in order to depict impending judgment against Jerusalem and its leadership. Matthew sees the Jewish leaders valuing of Jesus, 30 silver coins, as the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophetic action. And then he connects Zechariah's delivering these coins to the potter in the temple 
with Jeremiah's earlier paying a potter for a vessel that would be destroyed to depict God's judgment against Jerusalem's leadership and the Jewish people as a whole who had filled the land with innocent blood. Matthew sees the Jewish leader's purchase of a potter's field and transformation of it into a cemetery for foreigners called Blood Field as a sign of their own judgment by God in fulfillment of both Jeremiah 19 and Zechariah 11. In light of these connections, Matthew must have recognized Jesus as the good shepherd Zechariah was depicting. Once the sheep rejected Jesus, the covenant of pleasantness that secured Israel from being destroyed by all the peoples was broken. That's the Mosaic covenant. And their rejection of Jesus also resulted in the union of Judah and Israel, God's people in one whole, being shattered. The reunion can only be accomplished and enjoyed as people become a part of the one flock following the crucified and resurrected Good Shepherd, Jesus, as John 10 points out. Both Zechariah 11 and Jeremiah 19 are highlighting the judgment of God's people because of the wickedness of the leaders. As one writer summarizes appropriately, in Zechariah 11, the people are doomed to slaughter, and in Jeremiah 19, the city becomes a burial ground. The good shepherd is about to be executed on the cross, and he is no more valued by the Jewish leadership than a slave. When they shed his innocent blood, they will be bringing the final defilement of the land that will be recompensed by God's judgment once again, destroying Jerusalem and the temple and exiling the people from the land. Now, Matthew returns to focusing directly on Jesus. Back in verse 2 of Matthew 27, Jesus had been handed over to Pilate. Now in verses 11 to 23, we see Jesus being handed over instead of Barabbas. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. First in verses 11 to 14, the governor interrogates the king. Throughout this passage, Pilate will speak seven times, essentially asking seven questions. He doesn't seem like he's really in charge here. 
The key question is focused on Jesus' identity. Are you the king of the Jews? Now that title has only been used once before in Matthew's gospel. It's the way the Gentile magi referred to Jesus to Herod back in Matthew 2. Likewise here, a Gentile speaks of Jesus as king of the Jews. Pilate's you is emphatic. He is not impressed by Jesus' appearance. He certainly doesn't look like a king. Nevertheless, Jesus gives his cryptic yet affirmative answer. You have said so. He won't elaborate on this the way that he did before Caiaphas, leading to the Sanhedrin's belief that he was guilty of blasphemy and therefore deserved death. In verses 13 and 14, we find references to the chief priests' multiple accusations against Jesus. Matthew doesn't record any of them. Luke and John do, but we need not dwell on them today. None of them are true anyway. Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah, remains silent. Shocking, Pilate. According to Roman law of the time, a defendant who chose not to defend himself was assumed guilty. However, Pilate is already viewing Jesus as an innocent man. As one commentator observes, Pilate did not take Jesus' silence as proof of guilt, but as cause for wonder. In verses 15 to 17, we are confronted with the question, which Jesus? Look at verse 16 from the 2011 NIV on the screen. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. Many English Bible translations have just Barabbas in the verse, but they provide a footnote that indicates that many Greek manuscripts have the name Jesus Barabbas. The majority of commentators on Matthew's gospel agree that Matthew does seem to have indicated that Barabbas' name was indeed Jesus. It seems some well-meaning, pious scribes pretty early on in the process of making copies of Matthew's gospel decided that no evil man could be named Jesus. But of course, Jesus was an incredibly popular name amongst Jews in the first century. Thus, Barabbas may in fact be a nickname for this famous criminal. Barabbas is Aramaic and it means son of the father, which of course literally refers to every son in the world. But if his father was famous, he may have picked up such a nickname that people could refer to him as son of the father, indicating how like his father he was. Alternatively, there is some evidence in other Jewish literature that Barabbas was a nickname sometimes given to the son of a famous rabbi who might be referred to as Abba by his students. In any case, if Barabbas' real name was Jesus, that makes sense of why Pilate refers to our Jesus as the one who is called Christ. Thus, the choice between prisoners was Jesus, known as Barabbas, versus Jesus, who is called Messiah. But also there's the irony that Barabbas may be the son of some well-known human father, while Jesus is the divine son of the divine father. Thus, Jesus really deserves the title Barabbas as well. Also, the name Son of the Father probably has a further significance for us, as Jesus will die literally in the place of Jesus Barabbas. Jesus will also be dying for many other sons of fathers. In other words, Barabbas is a representative of humanity. Just as every other human is a child of a father, so Jesus will experience the judgment that every other child of a father deserves. Pilate obviously believes the Jewish crowd will choose to have him release Barabbas. The word the ESV translates as notorious, usually as a positive meaning, but it can mean famous or infamous. 
However, the other gospel writers specify that Barabbas has been arrested for murder in the midst of an insurrection. He was a rebel against the Roman Empire. He was a terrorist. But for the Jews, this is the kind of hero they thought the Messiah was going to be. Barabbas might have been viewed as a kind of Robin Hood figure. Thus, the Jerusalem crowd that's gathered could easily be swayed to support the release of a violent criminal if they believed that his violent tendencies were going to be expressed against the Romans. But Pilate is no idiot. He perceives that there's more going on here than the chief priests are telling him. So in verses 18 and 19, Matthew provides some parenthetical insight about the chief priest's envy and also Pilate's wife's warning. The reason Pilate revisited the Passover custom of setting free a Jewish prisoner during their freedom festival is to upset the Jewish leadership. Pilate surely expected that the crowds wouldn't mind upsetting the Jewish leadership. Pilate knows that the Jewish leadership is corrupt, and he expects that the general Jewish populace wouldn't have good reason to support the condemnation of a man he sees to be completely innocent. However, Pilate perceives that the Jewish leaders are threatened by Jesus. And Pilate certainly could act out of spite toward his opponents. The Jewish leaders have no deep loyalty to Rome, so they're bringing this beaten man before him, accusing him of all manner of outlandish things, crimes against the Roman Empire. This man must threaten them somehow. While he is trying to wiggle his way out of this debacle, he receives a message from his wife. She warns her husband to have nothing to do with this righteous man, not merely innocent, righteous. She had some kind of dream about Jesus. And for these Romans, and in the context of Matthew's gospel, a dream could be a message from God. Certainly the impact of this dream is truth from the God of Israel. Thus the governor receives testimony in defense of Jesus. Jesus is righteous. Pilate's wife insists that he must distance himself from doing any kind of harm to Jesus. The implication of her suffering from this dream probably is that there will be negative consequences, suffering of a different kind, brought in retribution against Pilate if he proceeds down the course he's going. Ultimately, this is a warning that comes from God himself. And if Pilate ignores this warning, he cannot claim innocence in the matter. Hold that thought. Will he listen to the voice of his wife? This governor refuses to govern. This commander issues no commands. He is governed by others. He will be commanded by the crowds to release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. In verses 20 to 23, still wanting to release Jesus Christ, he asks the crowds which Jesus they want released. Matthew indicates in verse 20 that the chief priests had persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas. Now at this point, It's important to reflect on the context. It is often observed that the crowds had cried, Hosanna, toward Jesus at the beginning of the week. And here the crowds are crying, crucify, against Jesus at the end of the week. However, this crowd is almost certainly not the same crowd. In fact, this crowd may be made up of largely of the mob who arrested Jesus. Most of whom had never seen him before and didn't know who he was. The Galilean crowds that had come to Jerusalem for Passover, along with Jesus on the previous Sunday, are probably still asleep in their beds on this Friday morning. It's likely that the persuasion of this crowd happened long before this moment. 
Pilate then asks this crowd in verse 22, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? He's not making a decision here. He's asking the Jewish crowd for advice. They respond with one Greek word. He must be crucified. Pilate is shocked at the specificity of their request. Not only are they suggesting that he's guilty of some crime, not only are they suggesting he should be punished, but they are specifying the worst penalty they could possibly ask for. Pilate asks them for reasons, for evidence. What evil has he done? There is no answer to that question. And Pilate knows it. So without evidence, the crowd simply amps up the volume and keeps on shouting, He must be crucified. So, in verses 24 to 26, Jesus is handed over to be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Earlier, the chief priests had wanted to avoid the possibility of a riot in support of Jesus, but now they've stirred up a riot of their own against Jesus. Pilate goes through a symbolic act to attempt to claim his own innocence, but there is no water on the planet pure enough to absolve Pilate. He is guilty. Ironically, it is only the innocent blood of Jesus that could possibly cleanse Pilate of his guilt. Also, note the providential irony in Pilate's words. He says to the chief priests the same words they said to Judas. See to it yourselves. Pilate claims innocence with regard to shedding Jesus' innocent blood. Don't miss the implication that Pilate is pointing to Jesus' innocence here. In Luke's gospel, he explicitly and repeatedly states that he finds Jesus guilty of nothing at all. But as Dale Bruner points out, he who condemns an innocent man under pressure is morally not very far above those who put on the pressure. In verse 25, we have some of the most awful words ever recorded. In Matthew doesn't use the term crowd here. Instead, he says, and all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. It is the crowd, egged on by the chief priests, who make this statement, but Matthew recognizes that they represent the people of Israel as a whole. Unfortunately, this verse has been twisted and used to fan the flames of hostile prejudice against Jews throughout history. The people explicitly accept responsibility because they have been persuaded by the chief priests that Jesus deserves death. The Jewish leaders have led the people into shedding innocent blood. It's ancient Israel all over again. Guilty of shedding innocent blood, they invite God's judgment. All the people here are fulfilling Jesus' earlier prophecy recorded in Matthew 23, 35, and 36. On you shall come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And so, all the people of Jesus' day are inviting God's judgment against themselves and their 
children. In other words, they are inviting God to hold their generation accountable for the death of Jesus. And he will do so. Through the Romans, he will destroy Jerusalem and the temple about 40 years after Jesus' death. Interestingly, the Sanhedrin will deny taking responsibility for Jesus' death just a few months after this. In Acts 5, the Sanhedrin had arrested some of the apostles for preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. An angel had set them free, so they returned to preaching in the temple. Luke doesn't name him. He simply refers to the high priest. But this is probably Caiaphas speaking. And he says in Acts 5, 28, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the apostles double down and reply. In verse 30 we read, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. Then they add, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus told Caiaphas he would be exalted to the right hand of God in fulfillment of Psalm 110.1. And that is what prompted Caiaphas and the whole Sanhedrin to call for Jesus' execution. Wonderfully, almost unbelievably, Peter confronts Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin with the fulfillment of that and indicates that Jesus would grant them, even them, repentance and forgiveness of sins. How do you think they responded? Acts 5.33 tells us, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. A Pharisee spoke up and calmed the Sanhedrin's wrath so that the apostles got out of there with only a beating, 39 lashes for each of them, assuming they followed later rabbinic limitations. And they were again commanded to stop talking about Jesus. The apostles' beating for which they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus was nothing compared to what Jesus experienced. Back in Matthew 27, 26, Pilate released Barabbas and scourged or flogged Jesus. There are three types of Roman floggings. And when we pull together all four gospel accounts, it seems relatively clear that Jesus was flogged twice Earlier in the proceedings, according to John's gospel, Pilate had Jesus punished with a light flogging, hoping that would satisfy the Jewish leaders so that he could release Jesus. Now, to prepare Jesus for crucifixion, Pilate has him flogged with the most severe form of flogging. We can be grateful that the gospel writers chose not to describe this in any detail, and I will spare you the gory details. Nevertheless, this flogging was considered to be a mercy from Pilate's vantage point. Flogging would weaken a condemned criminal so much that death on the cross would happen more quickly. Many died from the flogging itself. Pilate's level of responsibility for Jesus' death may be less than that of the chief priests. Jesus even tells him so in John's Gospel. But he remains guilty. Jesus alone in all of this account is innocent. And that is certainly Matthew's point for us. 
We've noticed how Matthew has used the word translated handed over or betrayed 15 times just in chapters 26 and 27. Judas handed Jesus over to the chief priests. The chief priests handed him over to Pilate. And Pilate handed him over to be crucified. But it's interesting to see how the Apostle Paul uses this same term to indicate that Jesus was actually handed over by God. In Romans 8.32, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul teaches several beautiful truths in this rhetorical question. First, God the Father chose not to relieve His own Son from experiencing pain, suffering, and death. What Father among us would not go to great lengths to reduce the amount of suffering our children experience in life? Sometimes, however, we recognize a benefit in allowing our children to experience some kind of suffering, whether it be the prick of a needle or the painful consequence of some choice we might have good reason to allow our children to experience some pain, infinitely so, with the Heavenly Father of Jesus. Second, the Father's handing over of Jesus was His handing Him over to be a human who could suffer and die, and not just could, but would. That is clear from the mention of Jesus' death two verses later. Third, the Father's handing over of Jesus was for us all. For all of us Christians. Thus, the good reason, the greater purpose for the Father to hand over His Son to an experience of suffering and death that far outstrips all other suffering in history has to do with all of us. It was on our behalf and in our place that He was handed over by God. Jesus died on a cross designated originally for a criminal known as Barabbas, He literally took His place as an illustration of His spiritually taking the place of all who would believe in Him. But Paul's main point in this rhetorical question is to ground a promise to believers. God, the heavenly Father of Jesus, promises to extend His grace to us in all things. It is because the Father handed Jesus over for us that the assertion of Romans 8.28 is true. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. God's grace shapes all things, every circumstance, every difficulty, every loss, every relationship, every failure, every pain, every sickness, every form of brokenness, every death. God's grace shapes all things so that they bring eternal good for every believer. Jesus died under the curse of God, hanged on a tree, so that all who believe in Him would live eternally under the blessing of God. As much as Judas, the chief priests, Pilate, and the whole people of Israel were guilty of handing Jesus over, shedding His innocent, righteous blood, God orchestrated every moment to accomplish the salvation of the world. We cannot view the death of Jesus simply as a travesty of human injustice. Jesus is no victim. God the Father was expressing His love 
for his son and his love for the world and his love for the elect through this grand drama. The mysterious plan of God to accomplish the salvation of sinners and to maximize the glory of the infinitely valuable eternal Son of God. We should stand in awe. Would you pray with me? Father, as the drama unfolds in the Gospels to show forth Jesus' suffering on our behalf and in our place, there are so many things that should lead us to worship and gratitude. Would you help us to see the amazing reality here and to be moved and changed by it every time we look, every time we listen, every time we meditate on what Jesus has done for us. Help us to see the wondrous glory that is on display for us in the cross of Christ. Thank you for sending your Son to take the place of wretched sinners. How he did not deserve such a destiny. And how we don't deserve such a destiny. It was all grace. It is all gift. It has nothing to do with desert. And so we thank you for your mercy and your grace on display for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you offer forgiveness of sins and repentance as a gift to every sinner. Help us to receive it by faith and help us to enjoy the life that you offer that is indeed eternal life. Starts now, the moment we trust in Jesus, and it lasts forever. Help us never to lose sight of that and help us to view our circumstances in light of the great gift that you've given so that even in our pain, even in our suffering, even in our grief and loss, we can see you doing good because you've shown us that that's how, you're, that's how you're postured toward us. That's all you've got in store for us, your children, now is only good all the time, even in the midst of very bad, because you gave your son, because you handed your son over to experience all these things on our behalf and in our place. Let that shape our worldview. Let that shape our view of our own lives and help us to live differently, seeking to honor you and to obey you in every area of our life because of what you've done for us. Thank you for loving us so richly and so deeply. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hang tight for just a minute.